Well, welcome to Sermon Seasoning. My name's David Mears. And I'm Mandy Curley. Sermon Seasonings, of course, is the podcast where we explore more deeply the text that we were looking at on the weekend and we're preaching from. And uh, this is actually our, fi- actually our final one in the book of 1 Samuel. Yes, yesterday we came to the end of our 1 Samuel series. Saul meets his death by his own hand. God's chosen king, the one chosen by his people, meets his death. The Lord's anointed has the kingdom torn from him and Israel is defeated. What hope remains for God's people? And as for David, nothing and no one now stands in his way to the kingship. Yet his response to Saul's death is not to celebrate or gloat. Rather, he mourns the death of God's anointed king. Dave, thanks so much for opening the scriptures for us. It's been great looking at 1 Samuel together. I've I've Absolutely loved it. Excellent. So what what else uh, would you like to look at today in our final episode this series of Sermon Seasonings? Well, I figure that the Amalekites kind of star in an infamous kind <laughs> of way at, at the end and, and have kind of been bubbling along in the background. They've kind of been sitting in the shadow of the Philistines for most of, of 1 Samuel. But I thought we might actually have a bit of an explore of the Amalekites because they're a, a pretty significant people in the history of, of of God's people entering the land. And, of course, the kingship being this significant moment where, where I guess, that consolidation of the presence of God's people in the land and the Amalekites are sitting around there. So I thought we might actually do a bit of a explore through the Bible and where we meet them. Excellent. So we're going to do a bit of flipping through some of the earlier bits of the Old Testament. We are indeed. So where we first hear about the Amalekites is is in an incident in Genesis 14. So they turn up pretty early on and it's an incident where um, some kings raided the, uh, the Jordan Valley and other places and captured a whole bunch of kings, including the kings of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, and including the Amalekites. Um, but also included that was Abram's nephew, Lot, who was captured. And then Abram gets all his men together, goes up, rescues Lot, but actually rescues the Amalekites and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's almost like these people who will turn up to be absolute bad guys in the, in the story of the scriptures, actually, when we first meet them, are being rescued um, by the man whom God gave his promise to bless the whole world. But oh. let's perhaps not overread that. <laughs> but then the next bit, the significant bit where um, the Amalekites turn up after that is actually in Exodus chapter 17. Now, if you've got a picture in your head or not of where, where that is in the book of Exodus, it's before the Ten Commandments, it's before they get to Mount Sinai. And so it's after they've been delivered um, from slavery in Egypt after the plagues and they've been rescued they've crossed the red sea and this is an incident that happens very soon after that what we find out is that uh, I'll, I'll begin it and then i'll give you a summary of it in exodus 17 verse 8 the amalekites came and attacked the israelites at rephidim moses said to joshua choose some of our men and go out to fight the amalekites tomorrow i will stand on top of the hill with the staff of god in my hands and so joshua fought the amalekites as moses had ordered And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And so that would go on, and then Moses would get tired, and he'd sit down, Mm. and and they held up his His arms so the staff would raise, and then the Amalekites ended up getting defeated by Joshua. And so then it says in verse 14, though, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered mm. and make sure that Joshua hears it, which is quite a telling mm. detail. I think there's a little bit of an Easter egg there because this is before Moses is told that he won't be entering the promised land. <sighs> and yet God's already sort of said, hey, make sure Jos- Joshua hears about it. He's going to have to make sure that this gets me- a message that gets passed mm. on later. He says, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Chapter 17, verse 15, Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. Notice that. Mm. Hands were lifted against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Interesting using that description of the throne of the Lord mm. connected with the Amalekites. Yeah. So that's Exodus chapter 17. Now, the next time we hear about them, it's in a familiar passage, actually familiar from what we've already looked at in our own Sermon Seasonings podcast. It's from Numbers 13 and 14, and when the spies were sent into the land. So when the spies were sent to check everything out, one of the things that they got scared about was the Amalekites. So the spies, afraid of all the peoples living in the land, including the Amalekites, and they go, no, we can't, we can't go in. Remember, this is the incident when, uh, with the 40 days with Goliath. And so God then says, uh, there's a bit of a confusion reference to earlier <laughs> podcast. Make sure you listen to that one. Goliath comes out for 40 days and we wanted, is there any significance? Well, the last time we hear about 40 days is when they explored the land and then they came back going, no, we're too scared to yeah. go in because the people are big. Goliath, obviously, being the biggest, comes out and reminds us of that story from Numbers 13. But God says, look, if you're not going to trust me, um, to those spies, then none of you will see the land. You you, you better go back to the desert because otherwise the Amalekites will beat you up. And so they then go, oh, maybe we made a bad call. So let's go in and guess what happened? The Amalekites <laughs> beat them up. Mm-hmm. Now, the next reference is a few chapters later in the book of Numbers, also from an incident completely randomly, I think. <laughs> so, I mean, are we to make something of that, Dave? Like, you know, we talked about the 40 days uh, mm. before and the whole significance of that. You're about to take us to Balaam and the yeah. donkey. Yeah. Uh, now, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Like, is this all, you know, are we supposed to draw some huge theological point from these details coming up again? Yeah, good question. I, th- I think with the numbers 13, where to go, no, that's just a really significant story in the history of Israel. And there'll be references to that made here, there and everywhere. In terms of the fact that we're about to talk about something that Balaam said about Amalek, that is just a rather pleasant fluke, I think, for, <laughs> our, for our podcast. But so what he says in Numbers 24, verse 20, is that um, Balaam, who you remember, was sent and paid for to prophesy against Israel and could not help himself prophesying blessing upon Israel mm-hmm. and cursing Israel's enemies instead of blessing one of Israel's enemies and cursing Israel. He says, I can't help but say what the Lord says to me. But in light of what we've already seen about Amalekite and the Amalekites from Exodus 17, this is quite interesting. Balaam saw Amalek and spoke his message. Amalek was first among the nations, but their end will be utter destruction. Mm. Even on the lips of a pagan man, there is a promise that God says, no, I've really got it in Mm. for the Amalekites and I'm even going to have Balaam say it. Mm. That's at Numbers 24 verse 20. And then what we'll find is there's a very special mention in the book of Deuteronomy. 
So, and it's interestingly placed. It's not placed amongst a series of prophecies or, or, or commands against other nations. It's just in the middle of a bunch of things that Moses lays down that the Israelites should do and not do, um, even mundane things or, or, or moral things when they get into the land. But in the middle of that, Moses puts down this law very clearly. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. In between two other laws, he says, Now, from verse 17, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. That's what we were reading mm. about in Exodus 17. Yeah. When you were weary and worn out. And that's an extra detail that we're given that we didn't know before. That the Israelite army, when the Amalekites fell at them, were exhausted. Mm. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. You know, cowardly. It's mm. let's let's like predators. Let's attack the weak of the herd. And the and what he says next is they had no fear of God. They had no respect mm. or honor for the Lord. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Mm. Now that's a very, very explicit and clear resolved law of God that when you get to the land, you beat the Amalekites. But what did he have against them? If the Amalekites won, he may as well have left them in slavery in Egypt. Mm. His deliverance, his rescuing, setting up the passage of salvation from captivity to the land that he had promised, the Amalekites, if they had their way, would have stopped that before it ever, be, ever began and killed the Lord's people. Mm. And the Lord loves his people. And he, was, he resolves, Amalek will be judged for this. Um, we get another interesting sync with our, or, or link with our, um, our, our podcast, because the next time they turn up, they're in league with Eglon, king of Moab, who, remember, was the fat king, king. that uh. Ehud be beat and killed probably when he was on the toilet, like we, we were thinking about the, the Saul reference. Yeah. I think there is no significance of that. It's just kind of funny. Um, and then when the Midianites terrorized Israel in the days of Gideon in Judges 6 and 7, their main ally were the Amalekites. They're explicitly mentioned. Um, in that big army, the massive army that outnumbered mm. the sand on the seashore that gathered around Gideon and his small group and then Gideon swept down and beat them, they were 50% pretty much Amalekites. And interestingly enough, do you know where that battle was? I think it's pretty close to the battle that we see in chapter 31, Dave. That is right. It is in the very same valley. In fact, it's probably just a couple of kilometres away in the Valley of Jezreel yeah. from the battle that we read about in chapter 31. 31. Amazing coincidence. Um, but I think what we're meant to see here is that we get a theme about the Amalekites. Mm. And what you observe about them is that they are raiders who prey on the weak. They have no fear of God. They, they, they seize the moment when they get the opportunity and they take the easy way. There, there's, a, in a sense, a cowardly godlessness about the way the Amalekites work. And that part of the very Lord of God, law of God was that when they went into the land, mm. the Israelites were meant to wipe them out. Mm. And so now you see, with that background, why the command in 1 Samuel 15, where, where Saul is told very explicitly, citing that reference mm. from Deuteronomy chapter 25, Saul, you must wipe them out. This is now the fulfillment of of my command from all those mm. years ago. You're the king. It's your job to do this. And at that point, he disobeyed. Mm. 
the the people that would have stopped his the people of God ever entering the land and he decides to preserve them to keep the plunder it wasn't just any act of disobedience mm. it was a profound act of disobedience the Amalekites weren't just any nation they were a singled out mm. nation in the law of God yeah. um, we also see this same theme about the Amalekites played out in chapter 30 when they raid the undefended areas mm. of Israel so remember how David was up out of Ziklag with the Philistine troops, the, the Israelites have all gone up to the Valley of Jezreel. And what do we see the Amalekites do? Fall on the weak, undefended towns of, of Judah. Again, just th this cowardly attack on the defenseless people of God. You see that same yeah. theme coming through. And then what do we see in 2 Samuel chapter 1? But we see an, an Amalekite that has so little fear of God that he is happy to boast, even though it was a lie, mm. of laying a hand and killing the anointed king of the Lord's people and plundering his body. We're told this young man was an Amalekite twice because it's important. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Here's an interesting thing about that young man is it's almost as if the story of the Amalekites ends with him. There is only one further reference to the Amalekites. It's in, in, in the one Chronicles. And it's only mentioned when some people under the, under the reign of Hezekiah, some Simeonites who were in that area, um, basically um, defeated what was left of the Amalekites 100 years later. Mm. It's almost like they ceased to be players in the story mm -hmm. of God once that young man yeah. was killed, which makes you think maybe there's a significance to him being an Amalekite. Um, and I think it's it's quite profound that it's all and fitting that after dying at his own hand, that it is an Amalekite mm. who was the very reason that the kingship was snatched from Saul, that Amalekite is there to pick up his crown. And yeah. uh, I think it's I think it is not an accident because in a sense it's his sin with the Amalekites that meant that the crown was taken from him. And guess who gives it to David? The Amalekite. <laughs> the Amalekite himself, yeah. So it's just really helpful as we look at those details and see the way that that all fits together um, and the way that God has been at work throughout all of that with the Amalekites um, and really just how cowardly they are and how good it is that eventually they're defeated in that. Mm. But what else have we seen uh, in 1 Samuel as we get here? Is, it, is there something else, you know, we've, we've looked at lots of structures here. Mm. There's got to be another one. There Surely is another there's one, one definitely, Mandy. <laughs> um, uh, so as Mandy was saying, we've spoken a number of times in this podcast of these structures where you get two things that sort of mirror each other and something in between and, and you get these these overarching high-level structures. Well, guess what? There is a real, real big one. Mm. Um, so now let, let me, I'm going to ask you a question and tell me what story I'm telling you about. So there is a prophecy of doom that's given to Israel's leader by Samuel. Uh, there's then Israel is defeated by the Philistines in a great battle. Then that leader's sons die then that leader himself dies. Then the Philistines take a trophy and display it in one of their temples. And it seems like everything is all over for Israel, but it turns out that it's the dark before the dawn. What incident am I telling you about? I'm not sure if we're at the beginning of 1 Samuel or at the end of 1 Samuel, Dave. Of course, because the answer is you're at both. 
It's exactly the same broad story. And you're going, isn't that fascinating? So if you think about it, the first couple of chapters, if you go right back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, it begins with Hannah and she goes to the temple and she wishes for a son and he's called heard by God and she's given Samuel and then she gives that wonderful song of praise about God's deliverance for his people and all of that. That's in a sense the preface for the book of Samuel. Then you get the story of Eli and his sons, which interestingly enough parallels almost exactly the story of Saul at the very end from the Witch of Endor onwards. You Mm -hmm. get this big macro structure that happens at the beginning and end of the book of 1 Samuel. Now, as we've said, it's important to understand that 1 Samuel to some extent doesn't exist. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are part of the same literary work um, but it was it would have formed such a big scroll, just like one and two kings, that it was separated into two. But just because it doesn't, it was done that way, doesn't mean that the division was artificial. Mm. Uh, what you find is you get these parallel stories that both begin and end the first part before the king of God's choosing turns up. And so, and so with all of these big structures, we're asking why are they there? What do they teach us? What's in between? All of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, I think what you see by these two structures is you see um, the people who are living like they're under the, like in the book of Judges, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. And we see that the story for Israel is defeat by their enemies um, and, and a descent into moral decay and... And because they do the practices like the nations around them, that they, they, they suffer and face God's judgment. Um, but then we see that God's going to do something that um, will help his promises or will enable his promises mm. to be fulfilled. And then in the second, so that's the first section. You see this, this thing with Eli. And then you see the second section where you've got the king that they chose, the king that was going to be like the nations, who mirrors what the nations do and ends up in the same mm. place. Yeah. Um, he's the last you read of him. He's consulting a medium, um, doing practices like the judges did, and, and 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 the nations around them. And what he does is he he meets with the same results, it's the same curse, the same failure, and the same failure for the nation, the devastation for the nation. Both of which bring shame upon the name of the Lord. Lord. It is the ark of the covenant in the beginning that is brought into the temple of Dagon. It's it's the it's the armor of the anointed of the Lord that's put before the tem- in the temple of the Ashtoreths. Mm. Um, and then it sets the scene for saying those two things end in the same place. What we actually need is something different. We need the leader that God has chosen to be the one who delivers and saves his people, one that will be after his own heart. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sets the scene for the narrative story about David as the king that we will see in 2 Samuel. Yeah, yeah. so it's, I love the way that we could easily go, oh, well, they ran out of paper and so they needed to start a new book. But actually God in his providence actually has 1 and 2 Samuel split mm. so that we can actually notice some of that detail and see the way that those two the beginning and end really book up, bookends the whole story. In, indeed, and that, and that the writer of of one Sam of one and two Samuel, but that the writer of of the Samuel um, story is very has very carefully crafted what we read before us, and, and it, it is an absolutely magnificent mm. work of literature, um, and and a wonderfully edifying one that teaches us 
so much, partly because of the way that it's crafted. Mm. Um, that that is the brilliance of scripture, and and of course the wisdom of God who inspired it. Mm, yeah, and I guess that then really brings us to the end of our series as we look back on one Samuel, mm. and in one sense, I guess I wanted to then ask the question of when we look then back at the big picture of one Samuel together, so not just the second half that we focused on in this sermon series, but the whole big picture of like, so what have we learnt by actually looking carefully at the detail and not just the big broad brush stroke because mm. I guess in some ways as you look back at 1 Samuel it's almost easy to characterize it as you see the the rise and fall of Saul mm. of yeah. God's kind of anointed king who is really in some ways anointed by God in judgment of the people yes. um, as the king of their choosing mm. um, and so we see his rise and fall and at the same time we then see the rise of of God's anointed King David, who is the one who is the king after God's own heart. And in some ways, it's kind of easy to look at the big broad brushstroke and go, yep, because David is the good guy and Saul is the bad guy. Yes, don't uh, be like Saul, do be be like like David. David. But I think we've seen something more as we've looked carefully at the scriptures because we've actually seen that both Saul and David are flawed. Mm. Um, both Saul and David are God's anointed. Mm. Um, and so there's a there's a richness and a diversity to each of them mm. that we need to look at. And so what is it that we're to make of that big? How are we to look carefully and not just do the cardboard cutout of be like David, don't be like Saul? Because there's something bigger going on in that narrative. Yeah, there is. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why we've chosen to do one Samuel in two parts, because I think if you if you if you had to do the whole book in in eight or nine weeks, what you'd do is you'd end up having that only having that high level flyover, which which can mean that 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 simplistic perhaps understanding of, of what's going on. It's not you, you can still learn a great deal from that, but 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 what you get it's kind of like the difference between perhaps having a a, a a wide angle lens where you get to see the whole panorama and then you get the zoomed in one on the on the like you kind of do when you're watching your own picture on the <laughs> on the live stream and sort of go really <laughs> you, you get zoom in you see every wrinkle you find out whether dave's ironed his shirt or not mm. um be, because you get that close-up focus and what we've been able to do i think and what the nourishment's been is we've we've had that close-up focus mm. um and and so what you will see is is that is that uh, the close-up, in fact, let me deal with the, the close-up first, is if you deal with the close-up first, you, you, you see people warts and all, and what you see in 1 Samuel is real people. Mm. Real people who you can't just make a little cut if cardboard cut out. If there's anyone who is slightly simply drawn, it's Jonathan. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do anything wrong, um, but he's also not featured enough so that you get to see his, his warts, right, because mm. he would have had them. Um, but but that zoom in gets you to realise that these are real people, and you can't just make cardboard cutouts of real people. Mm. There will be times where where good people do bad things, and where people who are fundamentally bad do good things, and so to it, it's we we see how God works in and with people that are, are flawed to achieve His purposes. So so on one level, if we look at David and Saul as individuals, we can learn things from them. Um, but what we do see is people like us 
that are, that have got human failings and need the power of God to do His work. Mm. Um, and so I guess that's where the whole you know even for for David you know is the treasure of the gospel is in is in a jar of clay. Right. Um, but then if you go to the high level, what we see is what God is really doing throughout the book, and that is critically important. In a sense, we're getting the outline drawn of what a ki- the king of God's people is going to look like. And mm. first of all, we see what th- that broad outline is, is shaped in the beginning with Saul, mm. but we also know that he is the Saul of the, he's the king of God of the people's choosing. I beg mm. your pardon, who is they wanted to be like the nations. And now he said, so he gives an outline of kingship, but, but it's a distorted outline. Of, of what the king of God's people, because he'll start off, but then he'll end up being like the, the nations. nations. Um, and then what we see parallel to that is we see the outline drawn of David. And that's an outline of somebody who is after who's God's choice. And, and there's so much that we see about David that sets the pattern of, of what a king should, of God's people should be like, who saves his people, who, who gives to his people, who does all of those sorts of things, who, who delivers from their enemy, who, who provides them with safety in their land by being the one who finally mm. annihilates the Amalekites. Um, and so you see him forming that outline of the king and we'll see that develop further. But what you see by looking at both is that you see that even there there's this broad outline of the, in God's providence of what the king of God's people is to look like and not look like. When you get the zoomed in focus you and you put them in that broad outline, you see that they don't they don't fit it very well themselves. Mm. They they they're um they the outline's bigger than them. Mm. And and of course it makes you go as we've been saying all the way along, who can fill this outline? And the magnificent thing mm. about the new covenant, when that king finally turns out, is that that outline that you thought was going to be the nice defining thing about the king doesn't fit him <laughs> yeah. because he's greater mm-hmm. than that outline. And when even when you zoom in on in the close-up on great King Jesus when he comes, you realise he is more majestic than that outline could have ever shown to you. Yeah. Um, that same outline that, that, that seemed so big and unreachable for, for certainly for Saul and also for David um, becomes just a shadow mm. uh, w- and, and is to the Lord Jesus what a shadow is to the real person. Yeah. The shadow has doesn't lacks the colour, lacks the definition, um, l- lacks the person. Yeah. And of course, when Jesus comes, he 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 blows that out of the water because the new covenant is to the old. Um, so Richard blows up that wine skin, yeah. and uh, and so you, that that's what we're seeing. So when we look at the narratives of the Old Testament, it's faulty to look at it and go, "Oh, that's a person we're meant to think is a good guy. Let's go be like him." And that's a person that's meant to be the bad guy. Don't be like them. We're actually to say, how does this draw the outline for the one who will be everything? But even that's going to be the outline. Yeah, he will be the fullness. Fullness. Yeah, and that is just such a beautiful way to end our look at one Samuel, as we see the way that the leader that we are looking for ultimately isn't even David, because uh, yeah. it goes far beyond that uh, to our King Jesus, who in all his glory and majesty is everything and more than we could have ever expected. 
uh, from a king. Exactly. And I think in, in a lot of ways it sets the scene beautifully for our next podcast series where we look at 1 Peter and 1 Peter is going to be one of those books that shows us exactly how much Jesus even blows, he feels that he explodes that shape um, in what he brings to his people. He is a king far greater and who achieves far more for his people than anyone reading their Old Testaments could have imagined until Christ turns mm. up. So I hope you're certainly looking forward to hearing all about 1 Peter and, and the magnificent gospel and the hope that is found mm. in it. Yeah, well, that brings to an end uh, season one of Sermon Seasonings and the end of our look at 1 Samuel. Uh, stay tuned. We'll have a little bit of a break over the holiday weeks and then we'll return as we get stuck into 1 Peter for Term 3 this year. Indeed. See you, everybody. See ya. I've been Mandy. I've been Dave. <laughs> <laughs>